Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Material Matters with Grant Gibson. That's me. We're on Series 5 now, but if you haven't heard the show before, then the idea is that I speak to a designer, maker, artist or architect about a material with which they're intrinsically linked and discover how it changed their lives and careers. Today I find myself in the central London studio of the extraordinary glass artist Shelley James. Now I think it's safe to say that Shelley is a bit of a one-off. After all, there aren't many glass makers out there that use quantum dots, tiny semiconducting particles used in nanotechnology, in their pieces. As this suggests, her work is often inspired by the projects she has undertaken with some of the world's leading mathematicians and physicists. James's practice, wrote one critic, is about making the unseen scene, sculpting in air. Shelley is a visiting lecturer at the Institute of Making, an artist-in-residence at Bristol Eye Hospital, as well as being an associate of King's College London. She has lectured and exhibited around the world, while in 2014 she was selected for the prestigious Jerwood Makers Open. Thanks very much for doing this. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Was that all reasonably accurate? Not bad at all. Not bad no, at all? Oh, good. Thank good. You I'm much. glad to hear That's it. That's great. No, I was <laughs> blushing. That's lovely. Thank you. Um, can we kick off by talking a little bit about the environment we're in? We've interviewed nearly 30 artists, makers, architects, etc., all over the place, uh, often in um, kind of wild locations uh, out in semi-industrial sites. We are right in the heart of London. I mean, how did you land this? So we are at a space called the Makerversity, which is part of Somerset House. And it's a shared workspace. It's an incubator for creative businesses. And I have had studios in various places, including cockpit arts. Um, but I... I'm sure we'll talk about that later, but mm. I decided to um, take a break from trying to afford a studio to develop my um, qualifications and experiences as an electrician lighting designer. So I moved out of London for a while, and that, but found that the things that I love to do are back here again. So I applied for something called the Makers with a Mission Bursary. Right which is for um, makers with an idea um, that probably doesn't yet afford them um, a space in London, but where London is the place to be because that's where the things that we want to do are. So um, I applied and I was lucky enough to get a six-month free bursary. So this is a space that is used and shared and enjoyed by, I think, 150 different makers and creative businesses. And Doing um, what kind of things, Shelley? They do all kinds of stuff. So, um, and that's one of the amazing things about being here. Uh, there's a guy who sits often just over a couple of desks away from me who reviews games. Um, there are people who are designing online apps for well-being and health. There are some of the other bursary holders are developing ways of reusing coffee grounds and I think the byproducts of brewing to create new fabrics. Mm. So there are there's an extraordinary range of different types of business. There's, there's someone else who's developing um, a a personal sort of a scooter, an electric scooter. So all kinds of different businesses. I guess the the main um, common denominator is that we are all passionate about innovation and about change and about not only um, sort of about about being part of the change that we want to see. So different ways of doing business and different ways of, of working. Interesting. I mean, can we talk about uh, your interest in glass? Mm. Uh, you came to the medium quite late. And I suspect more than any other artist I've come across, um, you were able to articulate your your interest in it really rather poetically. I mean, re looking at the clippings, it's uh, it's fantastic. You've described the material, for instance, as transparent and permeable, yet solid and reflective, precious yet ubiquitous, and constantly generating fresh and surprising connections between object, viewer, and context. It offers a perfect framework for an exploration of space, literal and metaphorical. I mean, that's rather beautiful. Can we unpick that? What does that, what does that mean? Well, glass is very beautiful, isn't it? I mean, so I suppose I came to glass because I was recovering from a, from a head injury, actually, and I got fascinated about the way the visual system worked because I was having to retrain my own visual system. And one of the remarkable things is that the brain wasn't didn't evolve in a world where glass existed. So it's something that is both 
transparent and solid is something that's very confusing and compelling to our visual system. And so that led me to work with the Bristol Eye Hospital, which is an ongoing collaboration, um, and to use glass as a way of thinking about the inside and the outside and also use the optical properties of glass to, to confuse, confound, delight um, our, our perception. So not beginning with glass as a sort of a glass maker, so I didn't have any particular skills or um, way of working with the material that, 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 that I was attached to. I was lucky enough to work with some extraordinary hot glass makers, but I also play with um, casting and with, with printing. So I suppose the, the idea of space is something that I became fascinated by because not only does it allow us to look at how we position ourselves in the world, but also glass allows you to experience the sense of ourselves and the other and those boundaries and the permeable and the impermeable way that they work. So you've alluded to the fact that you had quite a circuitous route into the material. I'm interested in extrapolating some of that. Um, because there isn't a welter of stuff about you in on in the internet world. Can we talk about your childhood? You were traveling in Africa, in America, in Europe. Were, were your family, were they, what were they doing? Were they interested in making? Um, not, not directly. I suppose my father's an academic and my mother was a social worker. And we were traveled all over the world, living in different countries, because my father was passionate about literature that developed in, in using English as a language, but in countries where English was not the first language, so Caribbean literature um, and other forms of literary form. So he's, he's English lit? Yes, he was. Right. Mel melodrama, um, popular literature is, is his thing. Right. And I guess so I travel with my family growing up. My dad's an academic, my mum's a social worker, and we really went to different countries as part of the baggage of my father going to these different academic institutions to study and to teach. So by the time I was 16, uh, I, my, I really didn't like, I found myself going back to um, school in Canterbury, a girl's grammar, um, where the idea of doing art was just outrageous. Um, and had, I, you been, had you been making things? No, uh, right. I, yeah, I've always been mucking about with stuff with my hands, right. making stuff with plasticine. I was kind of the, the original Blue Peter girl with the kind of <laughs> toilet roll and the washing up liquid bottle. So, I mean, my imagination has always been fueled by making stuff. Um, I just simply found that the um, formal art education wasn't kind of really for me I got to 16 I had to do I did my O levels and A levels in two years between the ages of 16 and 18 I wasn't considered good enough at art to take art A level I scraped a C um, at O level uh, and I was faced with the proposition of grinding my slow way through foundation and all of that sort of stuff and I actually was accepted to York University to read journalism but during my summer off, I kind of ran away from home um, and fell in love with a Frenchman and found myself traveling around, actually in France, and found myself drawing, illustrating um, lectures for people um, and earning a living from it. And it just seemed so extraordinary um, that I decided to, I thought, well, I'm no good at this, but <laughs> hey, it's amazing to do this. So um, in order to defer my place at York, I thought, well, if I'm, you know, crazy to do this but if I can get into the Grands Ecoles if I can if I can get through these amazing exams in Paris uh I will prove that I can do this then so I applied first time round they take something like three percent four percent of the applicants um and I didn't get in at all but I a couple of I went to a crammer and they said you know you've got potential uh give it come here for a year so what were you doing sorry what were you doing there Shelley? i was working as an illustrator right okay. so i worked as an illustrator for um banks essentially for uh credit Lyonnais, for uh because because i didn't speak french really when people explain what they did to me I would kind of do a little sort of cartoon, essentially. And so I got them to explain what they were doing technically. And I drew little cartoons and they put them onto OHPs in the old fashioned way. Mm. And they used those in their lectures. And slowly, slowly, I built a business as an illustrator working early, you know, early mornings, evenings, weekends to earn my way through art school or through this first crammer. Mm. And then I got in. I took the exams and I was lucky enough to get in the second time round. And so I continued to earn a living as an illustrator while I worked my way through college. 
Doing textiles? Yeah, so the first two years was a general foundation, and then I found that um, I wanted to make things which moved a bit more in space where the edges weren't so clear. I, was, I knew what a, a page was like. I knew what that was like. So I wanted to make things which had a, a different dimension and also where... Um, there was a craftsmanship involved with that that I didn't see in the other things that were open to me. So I, um, yeah, I did my, I did two years as, so the first two years were general, um, color theory, technical drawing, da, da, da. And then I did two years in textiles, uh, dyeing, weaving, um, printing. And then I did my thesis on color and the way that color in different countries is relates to, to the geology and the geography, but also, some other sorts of the semiotics of color, essentially. So yes, that was, so I graduated from, from French art school. And did you want to be a textile designer? Um, well, at that point when I was, it was still at a time, I loved what I found fascinating and what I seemed to be good at was working out what somebody's story was. And I was to continue to do that as in, um, I was sort of a translator, essentially, between someone's idea and some kind of manifestation of that idea. And so I came out of college with all these ideas about creating collections and stuff. And what I found as I went around with my portfolio was that the buyers would choose a picture from there, a picture from there, pay your pittance and tell you to come back and do another one a bit the same but different. And I kind of thought this isn't what I want to do really and I was lucky enough to be picked up by um, someone who did style forecasting and so mm. I worked with her on style forecasting and then my it's another it, it's another story but essentially I found myself the clients that I was working with generating stories for them but visual stories for them as an illustrator they had got to the point in their careers where they were being invited to be involved with um visa i mean it was carter blue which was related mm, to visa mm. and they were looking for a sort of trojan horse to go to work in san francisco to keep an eye on what was happening with their with their mother mothership essentially and keep reporting back to them so you were a trojan horse i was a trojan horse i suppose in my way <laughs> so they and in this very corporate world in they wangled me a job in san francisco so i set off to san francisco right because I'm quite intrigued, you used the expression running away to go to Paris. Mm. Uh, were you still running away when you went to San Francisco? And what were you running away from? I was running away from a relationship, actually. Right. It was a situation that was not really going where it needed to go. So this seemed to be not only an amazing way of seeing another part of the world as a grown-up, but also um, shifting my worldview so that I could make some better decisions. Mm. So you, you're in this kind of corporate world of doing what Visa's logo or something? Yes, essentially. Yeah. And, but you also, I mean, you stayed, you had this quite successful career as far as I can work out. You worked for Landor and Imagination, I seem to see in your, yep. your clippings. Yep, yep. That's still in San Francisco, is that? No, so I worked for two years in San Francisco and then realised that I was running away a bit. So it was time to come <laughs> home. I'd been away for 10 years. So I came back to the UK and the people who had been helping me with the design of the Visa logo um, took me on as an employee or as a consultant here in the UK. So I then became an, a global account director. I'm working on international clients and innovation for some of those amazing branding agencies like yeah, Landor, Imagination, Coley, Portobello, The Partners. So yeah, had a had a blast actually making some amazing again sort of I suppose being a translator um, between clients desires and other kinds of things whether it be packaging or environments or shows or whatever seemed to be what what was necessary at the time but then you stopped I did um rather abruptly actually um I fell off my bicycle right um in fact did that happen twice um and found myself with a raging fever um, for several days and what seems to have happened is that the um, the impact um, did something to the lining of my brain including I suppose chronic, chronic stress as well which meant that I I was diagnosed with chronic fatigue syndrome or ME so right. um, a virus the Epstein-Barr virus crossed the blood-brain barrier and um, it's a bit like dropping water into your hard drive of your computer uh, so I just had to I had to reboot None of the things that I knew how to do worked anymore. Uh, so w when you say that, I mean, it, it could sound quite abstract, but what, what were the practicalities of, of, 
of your situation? How did, that, how did it manifest itself on a day-to-day basis? So physically, I mean, yeah, I had a ding on the head, but, you know, um, once the bruises were gone, that, was, that wasn't the issue. It was that um, we don't realise in our daily lives how much our brains are filtering information. So I'm sitting here with you. You've just touched your phone. There's something happening outside. You're revealing the magic, Shelley. (laughs) (laughs) We're in space. No. So in normal life, your, your brain is able to filter out the things that aren't necessary. And for me, um, I wasn't, my brain no longer did that. So it meant that I couldn't cope with multiple stimuli. And any individual stimuli completely, would, would, I would find completely overwhelming. So, and the same happened with my with my digestive system. So I had to go right back to basics. I couldn't. There were only very few foods I could I could actually digest. Wow. Um, so what was your diet in that case? Pretty much rice, uh, boiled white rice, um, avocado sometimes, a bit of fish i mean really steamed you know it was just water right back to basics Mm. and so um light was a problem and so bright you're you're again all sorts of things in your system are adjusting to different types of stimuli so your pupils change shape when you encounter a bright light your different parts of your brain um can cope with movement in different parts of your peripheral vision you when you listen to the radio you might have several instruments going on at the same time i couldn't kind of jpeg i couldn't compress any of that stuff mm. at all so what that meant is that i spent a long time pretty much in in the dark um and any sort of effort including sort of eating or some involved co- coordination was just too exhausting I, how, just how long is a long time um Overall, it took me f- six years to recover. Wow. wow. So, I mean, there are various different ways of approaching recovery from this kind of thing. And I feel very, I'm so grateful that I did recover because some people really don't. And I think, I think it's, it's, a, it's quite a nebulous group of conditions that are grouped under this thing. So, um, but I'm one of the lucky ones. Uh, there are lots of different ways of thinking about this particular issue. And when I first got so sick um different people said oh you know you've been living a toxic lifestyle you know you should be much more you need to go to the country you need to detox um all this stress all this adrenaline you know it's kind of burnt you out and actually and the the homeopaths came around all kinds of people sort of came around with these sort of healing you know things and I thought oh I'm better and then I would sort of zoom off and try and do something and found that I would completely fall over but I was lucky enough to my partner at the time an amazing man um wasn't having any of it because he could see me sort of spending a lot of money and a lot of time, a lot of hope on things which actually weren't evidence-based. Um, and so we managed to track down a neurologist, um, thanks to Bupa, because I was I had that insurance. Mm. And essentially I went on this intensive time management program. So if I had to break down absolutely everything that I did, everything that came into my world, physically, emotionally, um, in every way. And I had to kind of work out, I sort of almost had a sort of an energy budget and it started off at sort of two. And if I did two things in the day, what would they be? What would be the things that would recharge and which are the things that would recharge my battery and which ones would deplete? And sleeping all the time isn't an option. So we basically chunked the day down into sort of 30 minute slots and um, worked out what I would do in those 30 minute slots. And I learned some great techniques for relaxation, sort of deep not not sleeping, but sort of deep relaxation. And every week I would have a little schedule of what I could do. And sometimes I felt I could do do that and a bit more. And I but the idea was that you would get to the point where you could do that with ease. So for the first couple of months, I got up and have breakfast, sit down, rest again. So, you know, a little by little. Then after a couple of months, I could get up, get washed, sit down, get up, get washed get dressed, sit down, go to bed, get up, get washed, get to the lift, push the button on the lift, go down the lift, come back up again. And little by little, month by month, I built up my strength Mm. and um, started to take photographs and started to, because I didn't yet have enough concentration to to kind of draw. 
So because that takes some hand-eye coordination, I couldn't kind of, the concentration wasn't sustained. So I started to take pictures and then became the photographer for the Barbican. For the Barbican, yeah. So this is how that happened. Yeah. How interesting. So when did you reach the point? I mean, obviously it took you six years, but you went on to do a printmaking yeah. MA in, in yeah. Bristol, yeah. University of the West of England. That's right, yeah. Um, was there a moment where you reached a point where you said, yes, I'm strong enough to do that? Yeah, so after, I think it was three and a half years, four years or so, um, I was strong enough to, um, I started to go back to work. So that, again, that took, I think, six to eight months where I was... Back to work in, in kind of... It's a, a, a company called Imagination. Yeah, well, yeah. because I couldn't, I didn't want to be unreliable, what I did instead was to take care of their um, ISO 9000 certification so it was internal so I took care of all sort of setting up the systems for plant servicing within imagination with the team of people and so but I I got I kept on getting sort of 20 hours a week and then I would suddenly feel really tired again and I've got to know my energy levels as a kind of compass I know when I, I sort of get sort of like a power cut if I'm doing something that I really don't want to do so I had to kind of take that seriously and say okay I can't do this. And so I, but I also knew I couldn't stay in London um, and not be earning money. So I sold my little flat and the relationship broke up. So I sold my little flat and I bought something in Bristol, rented out all the rooms in the garages and took myself back to college. Why printmaking? Because it's something that I knew how to do from... Um, my time is in doing textiles and in illustration. I loved the craft of it. I didn't feel as if I necessarily was an artist. I didn't know what I what stories I would tell that were, but I knew that it, you can tell when something's beautifully made. Whatever else you think about the topic or anything else, if it's beautifully made, for me, it already has a currency. So it seemed to me that that was the place to start. So printmaking and Yui, they, um, I, I took my bicycle on, um, I would go, when I was trying to work out what to do, I kind of worked out what my criteria were and took my bicycle to a ta different town most weekends and just took myself to a cafe and just sat and looked and said, are these, could these people be my friends? Does this look like a place where I would be happy? And I, I found myself in Brunel's Buttery on Bristol Docks and I thought, yeah, this 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 would work. And the price of a cup of tea and a piece of cake was was the level that I that I reckoned that I could cope with. And um, so I took myself there. Mm. And there was Yui there on the, at Bower Ashton, and they offered me a place, and it was affordable. And particularly as a mature student at the time, um, it was affordable. And so that's where I went. I just had to take myself off from the situation where I was um, because I wasn't getting anywhere. I was treading water and starting to get sad. So mm. I thought, nope, we've got to get on with this. It's not getting, I'm not getting any younger. We need to get, make a start. So, so that's um, what I did. What did your work look like while you were there? Because obviously now it's quite mathematically inspired or influenced. I mean, was that always the case? No, I suppose when you first learn a, a new skill, what they suggest, and I think it's right, and I do the same with my students now, is to take an image and it doesn't really matter what it is but use that image in lots of different with different techniques and see what the so the image is the constant and the technique introduces the variation so and I had recovered things from my you know my stuff from my life in Paris from my life in America and my life in London and they were all jammed together in this house in Montpellier in Bristol and among those were the scans that were taken in my brain soon after I'd fallen on my bike so I took the scan of the central bit of my brain and screen printed it lithographed it 3d printed it just tried actually we didn't 3d print it because at the time you can do that but mm. I just did all kinds of different stuff. So, so, so same image, same techniques. image, different techniques. And um, I was lucky enough. I sort of started to wonder about this thing about you know. So looking at this picture, what on earth can anybody tell about me from that picture? How did they know what it felt like? Um, and so that led to an quite sort of a kind of question in my mind about these about medical imaging really. And I was lucky enough to um, win the Welcome um, Images of Science 
Daily Telegraph award. So my work got represented by the Welcome Image Library at the time. Uh, and I had an exhibition of work at um, the Howard gallery in wales i'd made some giant prints okay so prints not glass by this stage no so but then i'd started to expect so i realized that there was something that happened when people could see an image see a face in that see some eyes in that so i went i realized i cycled past the eye hospital every day and i didn't know how that worked so i found that the guy who ran there was something called the cornea transplant bank in bristol which is only one of two it was it was only one or two in the country and i Got hold of the. I learned everything I could about corneas because it's this kind of window between the brain and the and the, and the outside world. And um, anyway, this guy John Armitage very generously said he would give me some time. So I popped in. They were preparing a transplant, and I thought, "Wow, glass is the. There's something here," because uh, it was you know all in vitro. It was, it was just a beautiful thing to watch. So um, I started to experiment in Bristol. There was a there was a tradition of. Um, Innovation in print. There's a Centre for Fine Print Research there, and there was a guy, an amazing guy called Kevin Petrie, who worked there. He'd done his PhD there on using um, ceramic transfer prints mm. in glass. Mm. And he was then at, um, up in Sunderland, so I took my, my, I started to borrow the ceramic, the um, enameling kiln and the ceramics kiln, and just sort of experimenting with this idea of the the brain as a screen the eye as a screen um inspired by the things i was learning from the surgeons at the eye hospital and took them up to um sunderland where to ask kevin why they were breaking i mean i was just pinching stuff from skips and you know using glass out of frames out of right. old shops and stuff right, right. and putting the prints on them and then sticking them into the kiln and seeing what happened and uh, another amazing generous glass blower called jay Muskery was in the coffee room when i was taking my stuff out of the bag and uh he said um, this would be really cool to do in hot glass. So I said, well, yeah, it would be amazing to do that. I have no idea how to do that. He said, well, let's see if we can help you. So I stayed on the floor of an, another amazing glass maker called uh, Vanessa Cutler. Yes. yes. Uh, who had a little house in uh, Roca and you chat with a bottle of wine and a fiver and you could sleep on a sofa or whatever was free. And I just spent the rest of that year going up as often as I could, hanging around the hot shop, pinching bits of time, showing them what I knew about um, printmaking and um, kind of, yeah, learning what I could. And then every time I made something, I would take it down to the eye hospital and show them and to the RNIB and show them. I was going to say, you must be incredibly persuasive. You've, you've persuaded an eye surgeon to let you watch him operate on a cornea and you've persuaded a top glass blower to, to work with you. I guess so. I mean, I suppose, <laughs> you know, I suppose... Um, Genuine passion, genuine yeah. curiosity is pretty, pretty infectious. And I think it seems to me, I mean, when I work with scientists now and when I work with anybody, really, um, if you approach something with genuine respect and curiosity for what they do, they sometimes see things about what they what they're doing in a in a fresh way. Um, and I think so long as and I. I suppose I was able to draw on my time in my in the corporate world to really be make sure that every experience, every time I was there, I wasn't. I was always on time. I was always well prepared. Um, I was. I'd always done my homework so that I wasn't asking them things that I could have found out any other way. So I suppose I always tried to make it as 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 rewarding and as interesting and as pleasurable for them. And I always credit everybody. So. Um, Yes, I mean, there are people who don't have the time and and they. I suppose the scientists and the artists I work with are self-selecting because they're the people who who love that kind of curiosity and mm. that and that experiment. Mm. Mm. I mean, and obviously a penny dropped because you then went on to do a PhD at the Royal College of Art. I, I mean, you decided this kind of research-based practice was was for you at that time, obviously. Mm. And it still is, really. Mm. Yeah. Mm. I mean, it, that was a little bit of a circuitous route because I, well, I, yeah, I, I had applied ages ago when I was first recovering from the head injury to go to go to the go to the RCA to right. do printmaking, actually. And I was just chucked out of court, um, and I was sort of slunk away with my tail between my legs. And but this time, um, I got a residency thanks to um, Colin at, in Farnham. So I worked as a cleaner. And where uh, did you clean? Anybody, I, there was a vicar, a whole bunch of people in, in Farnham. 
I set myself up as a as a cleaner so that I could just pay my way, really. Um, and it's actually an amazingly rewarding thing. Like you go in, there's something, there's a job to do, you do it, you can tell when you're done. They're pleased, you're pleased, you get paid and you leave. And it's just, it's quite a relief after the sort of intensity and the kind of trial and error of a research-led practice to do something that's so tidy and that's so specific. I once did a talk with Jürgen Bay, the Dutch Dutch designer, and we spent a good 10 minutes with him discussing the craft of cleaning and how we should take cleaning more seriously as yeah. a as a as a activity really. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, the zen of the zen of tidying. The zen of, the zen of tidying. <laughs> and David Lynch did like a whole 10 minutes of like sweeping the floor at the end of one episode of Twin Peaks and it was kind of beautiful, I've got to yeah. say. It was really yeah. lovely. Yeah. Um anyway, we're digressing. So you were cleaning to do this residency in Farnham. Mm. Um, and, and from there, the Royal College. So from there, um, I applied and um, I was lucky enough to be accepted. And the, the, the woman who was the wife of my boss when I worked in Paris, you know, who's, who became sort of like my French mother, she subbed me for the first two years. And um, the lady who'd been her au pair let me have her flat in Notting Hill at mates rates, just because they could see that I was passionate about this, but there wasn't any way I could afford it. Mm-hmm. Um, so they gave me a leg up and then I was lucky enough to get funding for the last two years. And so I was passionate, I, I guess the topic that I chose, I, my original topic actually was to, because by then I'd been making a lot of work with the eye hospital and using that, um, as a tool for conversations with patients about their eye conditions and with their families about their eye conditions. And the idea was to see if you could use art in hospitals as a kind of therapeutic tool and as a kind of, as a, as an, as a, departure point for conversations which aren't just um reassuring but actually instructive and but we tried to go through ethical approval and what would the controls look like and all that sort of stuff and it just became so difficult to do that that what I decided I would do is take a slightly sideways step into perception into the software of perception so I mean I I know about eyeballs but what happens once the stuff's come in at the front because actually it turns out that a lot of eye conditions aren't a lot, of, a lot of problems with seeing aren't so much to do with whether the eyeball's getting the information. It's what happens later on in the stream. Right. So the PhD morphed from being about the hardware of perception and about the hardware of communicating to, to patients into being something which was much more playful and interactive and more to do with the way that we perceive space and the way we process information and about what we know is true and what's not true. So... Up until this point, it sounds like your interest has been the combination of glass and, and biology, really. Mm. Um, I'm kind of intrigued by when the mathematics and the physics became became a <laughs> okay. subject. Because I mean, 2015, for instance, you work with the mathematic physicist uh, Sir Roger Penrose, who's, mm. I guess, best known for his work with Stephen Hawking. Yes. Um, so when did this emerge and, and what, what happened in that project? So, well... As I got to learn more about how perception works, how the eye and the brain work together, um, I, of course, how I worked, the eye and the brain working together, what I realized was how, how alert the eye is, or this, the visual system is, to very, very small changes in angle. In the, the way the, 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 the eye is amazingly alert to the optics of of materials and light. So the work I did for the PhD was about moire interference patterns. And I realized that you can create an illusion of depth and movement by very subtly adjusting the spacing between sets of lines and seeing the visual system processes, those edges in ways that are quite remarkable and and actually still very mysterious. And so I started to project light through those and came across a crystallographer who was fascinated by patterns and repetition symmetry as well, because that's his thing. And so we started to work together, which led to the Jerwood proposal and um, the Jerwood um, installation. And so there we were working with classical symmetries, and we were lucky enough to go to a, a meeting at the Royal Society. Pl- platonic solids. The platonic solids, my, yes. my, my research tells me. Yes. <laughs> yes. I, I mean, I could go on about that, but I probably shouldn't because we talked long enough. But um, I suppose there are these really subtle and beautiful shapes that have we've been fascinated by since we were first looking at stuff um and the greeks were very interested in the way that these 
very beautiful shapes might have some kind of a link to some hidden quality in the universe and in different objects. And so they linked a shape and there are only five of these platonic solids and I'll go into the geometry of that if you like. But anyway, there are only five ways that you can make a closed shape where all the sides are the same shape. For example, triangles fit together to create a tetrahedron. Um, squares fit together to create a cube, obviously. Mm. So there mm. are five of these. And the Greeks related this, um, these beautiful, simple, fundamental shapes to fundamental elements in nature. So um, the, the cube, for example, is relates to... Um, the earth, there's an up, there's a down, it's solid. Anyway, so there were these five platonic solids and I, and I, because I wanted to cut them so precisely that I could, that we could bend light through them in particular ways and create these multiplications of the internal shapes in the ways that we wanted to. Um, I developed a technique for cutting the glass that way. And then we were lucky enough to, to go to a lecture with Roger Penrose where he was talking about this other kind of symmetry, a forbidden symmetry. And we went up to him after we kind of stood in line for ages and ages until almost everybody had gone. And he was like, oh, I want to go home. So we'd just love to talk to you about, about impossible symmetry. How, does, how on earth does that work? And of course we'd read a little bit about it before. So we had some quite sort of informed questions. And he generously, agreed to meet us. So we went to his study in Oxford and he pulled out some books with his own illustrations in them. And we had a chat and I said, well, what do these look like for real? What? He said, I, I don't know. I've never seen one. I said, well, could I, could I make some? And he said, oh, well, yes, that would be interesting. So, so I did. And that led to the next body of work about fivefold symmetry and impossible symmetry, which then led to an ongoing project about impossible symmetry and quasi-periodic lattices. And so I guess... Quasi-periodic lattice. Mm. Now, my GCSE in physics isn't going to stand up to that. Well, what oh, what, what might be. that be? So we're used to, in classical geometry and classical symmetry, there are, um, we are used to thinking of, in fact, classical crystallography. There are certain rules about the way things pack together in space. And the lump that the unit could be quite big, but that unit always repeats. So that makes what's called a periodicity. There is a period, a spacing between those shapes, and there is a way in which they pack together. So those, that's classical periodic symmetry. Now, there is a way of packing things together in space, which was believed to be impossible until Dan Shackman found something that had been packed together that way in 1997, I believe, and he won the Nobel Prize for that eventually, having been cast into the wilderness, which is, which is a quasi-periodic lattice, which means that it actually, it looks as if it should repeat and it creates a crystallographic diffraction pattern as though it repeats, but actually it never does. So it has a forbidden symmetry, has a five-fold mm. symmetry. So that means that it obeys some new rules of symmetry and packing which had never been discovered before and was science this kind of physics were you fond of this at school are you self-taught you know keeping up with with the people who are leading the field right i'm yes uh, i got i didn't get i got o-level maths um by the skin of my teeth. Um, I was, as I said I, before, I did my O-levels and my A-levels all together at the same time. So I got just enough to get into university, but that didn't include any sort of anything that I wasn't likely to pass, like biology or physics or chemistry or anything like that. So no. And I guess the way that I am lucky enough to interact with these people is that I, I make what they're talking about and by making it, I enter a conversation with them about what what the edges. Are, so how big are those things? How does that fit together? Um, what happens over there? Where's the edge of it? And once you start to ask those questions, then you enter a difference. You, you don't need to know what the numbers mean. You simply need to know what the rhythm is, what the pattern is. Because you did this also this really fascinating sounding residency, I think in 2016, through the Crafts Council at King's College London mm. in the physics department there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, when you think of residencies, it often seems to be artists working in old country houses, noodling about in the historic collection and then making pieces that are spread across the country house that are inspired by that particular collection or history. This wasn't like that at all. Um, what were you doing there? So... 
this was a special kind of residency. I mean, I, I take your point about the kind of glorious isolation or being the kind of the pearl in the oyster as mm. an artist, but this residency had a dual purpose. One of them was for a chance for myself and the other artists involved in the programme to spend time in the environment and get to know some scientists that we might work with and we'd be inspired by. And the other is actually a reciprocal arrangement with the students and the staff to invite them to make things themselves. And so we ran a series of maker of workshops, essentially, in a lab where I taught them how to silver things by hand. I taught them how to um, use a blowtorch to create things out of test tubes. Um, we taught them how to fuse glass. We taught them how to cut glass. We taught them how to work with the material in different ways. And what was fascinating was that a number of the scientists had been using glass in the instruments that they that they work with, but actually found the limitations of what they could buy off the shelf were stopping their experiments from moving forward in the way they would like. And so what we started to do with the students and actually with some of the staff was to help them to, to discover the techniques and to, to, to develop their own techniques for working with glass in different ways. So, so they could make their own tools in other They words. could make their own tools. Ah. And what did you derive from it? Well, a number of things, really. One of them was the chance to work with the team who are working on quantum dots. So as, as you explained earlier, um, it's a particular way of stringing um, molecules together in such a way that the, the orbit, parts of their, their electron orbits are lined up in such a way that if you skim a photon through, the, through that backbone, it hops along like pebbles along waves and pops out a different color at the other end. And you can, you, as, the, as the photon pops along that backbone, um, it actually makes the molecule flex slightly. So just the force of that interaction. And so you can, what they're doing now is to pack these quantum dots into a, into a, into a dot essentially and load that with a, with a drug and send that into the body and then use a pulse of light to make that quantum dot flex and deposit the medicine where it needs to go. So I was lucky enough to meet the team who did that. We were just playing with the material and I started to see how I could embed that in glass myself. And so we made a series of objects and pieces together, which then went on to the V&A Digital Design Weekend. I mean, we just had all sorts of fun um, and fascination really working with light in, in different ways and light and structure in different ways. So forgive what's like to sound a really daft question, but if you put a quantum dot in a uh, chunk of glass and you fire some light at it or shine some light at it, what, what happens then? It, it glows in a different colour, essentially. Right. So, I mean, I, it's, it's not, it's obviously far away from those sort of medical applications, but what it allows you to do, in fact, what, we, what they discovered was that there was something happening inside the surface of the glass. The diffraction wasn't, was unusual. So there was there was something about the way that the light coming off that quantum well that film with quantum dots in it was interacting with the optics of the glass that was that was perhaps suggesting something else that might be possible to do with the quantum dots that they hadn't thought of before. So more recently, you've been working with a composer, Dr. Scott McLaughlin, uh, and the, the project you've been working on was inspired by conversations with the physicist Sir Michael Berry. Um, how did that come about? couple of things really I mean um I anybody who works with the material knows that it makes a noise when you work with it so as you grind glass it's sort of particularly if it's a hollow bit of glass it kind of it it, it hums it sings it it bellows it does its thing and I became fascinated by that and so so that was one part and in fact I had a little exhibition at the Museum of the History of Musical Instruments in Oxford and met Scott at a symposium about musical instruments and we did a series of projects together creating hollow vessels da, da, da. but so that's one that's been a conversation an ongoing collaborative conversation whenever he needs an artist to work with he gives me a ring when I wherever I can get him involved we just sort of we just really respect each other's ways of working and so that wasn't that I, that's I see did that 10 years ago I guess and it just is an ongoing an ongoing thing that keeps going so I'd met Scott through this exhibition in Oxford and been collaborating together for a while. But what this, the project with Michael Berry was about was that having worked with glass as a, as a, as a surface that you can shine light through, I realized that also what's really remarkable about glass is that if you skim light across it, like light from a swimming pool, you get an effect, a focusing and defect, defocusing effect, which is called a caustic 
And it turned out that my supervisor, Priscilla Hurd's old friend in Bristol, was Sir Michael Berry, who was the world expert on caustics. <laughs> so I kind of, I found out as much as I possibly could about caustics first. And then I rang him up and said, I'd be grateful for uh, what would happen. You know, how could I modify the, these surfaces in such a way that we are able to um, fine tune these caustics. And Scott was interested in the way that in musical notation and how um, contemporary composers are looking for ways to represent their creative intent that doesn't involve old fashioned staves and stuff. It's more of a conversation between the composer and the situation and the, the, the player or the interpreter. So it struck us Scott and myself that these caustics were became these gorgeous patterns which were a a diagram of intent that's been embedded in the glass but that isn't a direct one-to-one -one relationship with the glass and so we will we work with Michael Berry and with um, the Cultural Institute here at King's and with Scott to create a series of performances about about caustics and about these these kind of projected scores from, from these glass objects that we started to make um, purely for the surface. The old fashioned way of representing the noise you need to make next, um, even a graphic score is quite static and it doesn't allow, I mean, the, 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 the composer is kind of locked down to a particular thing. So it doesn't allow him or her to react to the situation where the work is being interpreted and it doesn't actually allow much for the for the musician or the interpreter to kind of bring themselves to the situation it also is pretty dull for the audience to watch there's somebody who may or may not be wearing a spectacular dress and heels or something um kind of grinding away at an instrument looking at a score that they aren't they can't see so what we wanted to do was to create something which is immersive for the audience as well so we by by skimming light across the object that we made as a, as, a, as a kind of a luminous score, you can not only adjust the position of the light and the position of the object and the, the, the walls that, that, that it bounces off in such a way that you create a kind of an immersive score. You can also invite the interpreter to choose a particular section and to begin to um, interpret that. Mm. And so the audience, the, the, that whole conversation between the space the composer and the interpreter is literally transparent to the audience and they are able to make their own way of joining all those things up together well, we're coming to the end of our time Shelley but I'm also intrigued by the fact that you have this kind of well is it a side hustle I don't know you're a qualified electrician you're now a lighting designer um how did that come about why did you decide to do that as well huh. well because I'm not sure if it's a side hustle or a, or a central hustle. Um, <laughs> Have we spent the last 50 minutes talking about your side hustle in that case? No, not, no, a, not at all. They're, they're, they're I mean, neither, neither of them feel like hustles. Actually, they all feel like complete delights because the, 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 the turning point for me came because I, I've been interested in the way that light travels through stuff, the way that the brain deals with that. Um, and I was in, lucky enough to, to be accepted to create some work for Collect um using glass which changes color in different lights and i found myself uh, struggling to kind of cycling around industrial estates trying to find the lights i needed um some usually a bloke behind the counter says well do you want that one or do you want that one I said well could i have a look and they said well no um and I just did not know where to start and um a remarkable electrician jeremy cox was working at, at cockpit i said help and I found myself paying him more than I'd paid myself uh, <laughs> for him to wire up some light you know choose some light bulbs and wire them up and I not only did I think this is not rocket science I just need to know a bit more about the science I also realized that some of the things that were happening in terms of the the electrons and all of that stuff is exactly what's happening in the brain is exactly I mean there are all these different dimensions of electricity happening all the time and actually some of the early signs that I was really unwell was my EEG so the electrical signals in my brain so all that stuff kind of came together and 
So I thought, this is not rocket science. Not only do I need to know how to do it for myself, but also there are going to be other people out there like me. How on earth can I help myself and help other people at the same time? So I, and at the t- I, I'd come out of the collect project burnt out without a bean. So I spent my last money on training as I always do, um, with some help from my dad and, um, took myself to an industrial estate and got, got my qualifications, then went down to Bristol and spent some time there, just kind of getting, getting some experience really. And so now what I do is use that expertise in my own work, but also help other people to do the same, which I love because you see somebody with one, literally one perspective on their work and you're able to bring along a torch and a panel and a couple of LED strips and suddenly it glows completely differently and it's just the most brilliant, brilliant thing is to invite somebody to see their work differently and to grow in confidence about what that might be. It is a fascinating art, lighting design, I think. Uh, our time is is up, but the kind of final question is, is always uh, what we can expect from the future. Ooh, well... Uh, what's next? I guess a few, as usual, a few things. Um, glass and light is my passion. Um, and so I'm working with Matt Durren on a project um, and with Brian Sutton, the crystallographer that I've been lucky enough to work with. Matt, Matt Durren, the, the, the glass artist. Yeah. Yes. He's also curating, um, he's been curating a residency. So I'm, we developed some work which involves light and sound um, to create diffraction, well, these interference patterns, which we're developing some more. So that's ongoing. Um, And I'm also working here at Somerset House. I have a a six month residency and I'm, I'm working on a project on light and tech and well-being. So been looking at the way that plants and animals respond to light with these new kinds of LEDs that we have, um, which replicate the wavelengths available in sunlight and these new kinds of control that we have, which allow us to essentially um, manage the light levels in our world in such a way that our bodies are, bodies kind of natural rhythms are sustained and, and supported. So I'm looking at light and tech and well-being. Um, I'm working with a couple of really remarkable artists on helping them to to bring light into their work. So I suppose my own practice, um, continuing to just love trying new stuff out and helping other people to do the same. Well, it sounds like you've got a bit on. Um, Shelley James, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. And to learn more about Shelley's work, go to shellyjames.co.uk. There are images from the interviews as well as little films and other things on my Instagram page, Grant on Design. If you've enjoyed listening and want to see this podcast flourish, then please rate and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this from. And go to my Patreon page and make a pledge. You can find that at patreon.com forward slash material matters. You'll be helping to take the message of the importance of materials, skill, craft and design to a whole new audience. Thanks very much for listening. <laughs>